The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was the definition of a high-profile trial involving two movie stars, their broken marriage, revelations of vicious fights, alcohol and drug abuse, and claims of physical abuse by both. Johnny Depp was suing his ex-wife Amber Heard for defamation over her op-ed piece, which he claimed falsely accused him of abusing her. Heard was countersuing for defamation over statements by his lawyer, which she claimed falsely accused her of creating a hoax surrounding the abuse allegations. They both testified to contradictory facts. It started with slapping, um, and it got to be like repetitive slaps where he'd hold me um, in a position and slap me multiple times. Never did I myself reach the point of um, uh, striking Miss Heard in any way, nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman um, in my life. The jury awarded Depp $10 million in compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages after finding that Heard had defamed him by claiming he abused her. The jury awarded Heard $2 million in compensatory damages for Depp's lawyer's statement that she created a hoax. Joining me is Nima Romani, president of West Coast Trial Lawyers. How did you see the verdict? Was there a clear winner? Johnny Depp won, and it wasn't close. I would describe it as a complete and total victory, especially after the humiliating defeat he suffered when he sued the Sun in the UK. To what do you attribute Depp's success here? Two factors, likability and credibility. There's no question that Johnny Depp was the more likable witness, both inside the courtroom and in the courtroom of public opinion. But importantly, credibility is the reason Amber Heard lost. She lied about facts that really had nothing to do with the abuse, such as her donating $7 million in divorce proceedings to charity when she didn't do so. The jury didn't buy that she pledged it, not donated it. And even when it came to TMZ and the video that she took on her phone made its way to TMZ, it was leaked, obviously by her or someone working at her direction. Similarly, when she filed for the TRO, the temporary restraining order in 2016, and TMZ was tipped off. It had to have come from Amber Heard. So when she lied about these facts, the jurors were free to disregard her testimony entirely, and they chose to do so. Also, she exaggerated the extent of her injury. She told the jurors that she thought Johnny Depp was going to kill her, that Depp hit her so many times that she lost count. The pictures and videos, even though they did support injuries, they didn't show an attempted murder or felony assault. For those reasons, the jurors sided with death and they chose to punish her. What about the fact that the jury awarded her $2 million based on some statements that were made by his lawyer? The jury did surprisingly award Amber her $2 million on only one of her counterclaims. 
But as you mentioned, it wasn't a statement made by Depp. It was made by Depp's former divorce lawyer, Adam Waldman. And it related to the 2016 incident where LAPD were called to their downtown Los Angeles apartment. And specifically, Waldman said that it was a setup and it was a hoax that LAPD were called. And it turned out that Amber Heard didn't make that phone call. Someone from New York did. And Amber Heard didn't cooperate with LAPD when they arrived. So I think based on those two important facts, the jurors found that, you know, Waldman did defame Heard. Importantly, because Waldman was acting as Depp's agent, not agent in the term of a, like an acting agent, but the legal term, because there was a principal agent relationship, Depp is responsible for Waldman's defamatory statement as a matter of law. And therefore, that $2 million offset the $10.35 million that he's otherwise owed, the total judgment will be $8.35 million in Johnny Depp's favor. Heard and her lawyers have said that Johnny Depp had an advantage here because of his wealth, power, and fame. Well, there's no question that the public support was overwhelmingly in Johnny Depp's favor. And some of it was because of factors outside of her control, but some of it was because of her own doing self-inflicted wounds or unforced errors, as I like to call them. So men and women of all generations love Johnny Depp. He's a handsome, charming, charismatic guy. They've been fans of his acting for decades. Heard also is the face of the Me Too movement that a lot of men unfortunately think has gone too far. But obviously, this is a legal case and it should be tried in a courtroom and the decision should be based on the evidence. The jurors are people and there's no question that Heard was less likable and that she lost the PR battle. And because Johnny Depp was so credible, he was so vulnerable, he talked about his own shortcomings, his drug and alcohol abuse, the physical abuse he suffered at the hands of his parents. He was very open, he was very transparent. Um, he owned up to a lot of his mistakes. But Amber Heard denied everything. She denied ever striking Depp except for one incident. She really minimized her drug use. She said she used it once on an airplane with a flight attendant when it was clear that she was also using substances with Depp. And I think if Heard had taken a more balanced approach and she had said that she was also verbally abusive, this is a mutually violent relationship. They were both victims. They were both perpetrators. I think that would have been a path to victory. But for her, instead, took this very extreme position. She didn't accept any responsibility for anything that happened during the course of the relationship. And I think as a result, people didn't find her likable or credible. Why do you think he lost the UK case where the standard for libel is less than it is here, and yet he won this case? I mean, what made the difference? It's very surprising. Standard is higher for a plaintiff here in the United States who talks about that clear and convincing standard because Johnny Depp's a public figure he has to show actual malice. Whereas in the UK, the burden's on the defendant, the son, to prove that the statements were substantially true. That's why a lot of legal commentators, including myself, thought that it was a mistake for him to file directly against her here in the United States and he would lose again. Well, it turns out this was both an extraordinary legal comeback, but really public relations genius move by doing so. In my 20 years of practice, I've never seen someone come back like this. How much was it the lawyering? It seemed like Hurd's lawyers were just out-lawyered by Depp's team. 
They were. You know, obviously Heard made her mistakes, but Heard's lawyers similarly made a number of strategic legal mistakes. We can go through them. The most important of which was they ran out of time. Um, they used far too much time doing a very slow cross-examination during Depp's case in chief. In fact, when Depp's team initially rested, Heard's lawyers had used more time than Depp did. So they ran out of time and had to go through witnesses quickly in the end and couldn't call witnesses if they wanted to call. Other strategic mistakes include, frankly, Elaine Bredehoff handling Camille Vasquez's objections very poorly. This is someone who's been practicing law for almost 40 years. These are basic evidentiary objections that you learn in your second year of law school. And for anyone who followed the trial on TV or on social media, it was clear that she was unable to reformulate her questions to overcome these objections. You know, there were few in-person witnesses supporting Amber Heard, and deposition testimony isn't the same. Amber herself testified, Whitney, her sister testified. There were some paid experts who showed up in person, but everyone else testified via videotape deposition, and it's just, it's just not the same. Um, similarly, they focused too much on drug and alcohol abuse. And it's clear that Johnny Depp has a substance abuse problem. He's admitted it. This is a case of physical violence, a case of sexual violence. That should have been their focus, not the fact that Amber and Johnny were arguing and you know, he would get drunk and you know abusive. Um, so they really lost their focus. And frankly, they didn't really control their client. You know, Amber Heard had testified truthfully that she intended to donate $7 million to charity, but you know, ran into financial problems and you know had to keep the money and she was embarrassed and that's why she lied. I think that would come across much more credible. Um, similarly, she admitted to leaking the video of TMZ because she wanted the public support because everyone likes Johnny Depp. Again, that would have been more believable. Um, they, so both the legal strategy was poor and, and in terms of prepping the witness um, to testify, I think they did not do as good of a job as they could have and should have. Did it make a difference that they brought the case, that Depp brought the case in Virginia instead of it California? It did. It made a big difference because First Amendment laws are more friendly here in Los Angeles, California, where I practice. There's something that's called an anti-slap statute that allows judges, which tend to be liberal here in Los Angeles, to dismiss defamation suits before they go to a jury trial. They're very strong here. Uh, the next sort of best venue would have been New York, where the ACLU is, which is pretty liberal as well. Northern Virginia, where the Washington Post is headquartered and their servers are, um, it's not a bad venue for uh, a defendant in a defamation case, but it's certainly not as good as L.A. or New York. It tends to be a more of a purple state in terms of the jury pool. So um, it was somewhat favorable for death, but certainly not as favorable as the U.K. was. Does it seem as if the jury really carefully considered each claim separately and followed the judge's instructions? It's questionable that they understood the damages portion because they did return the verdict on one claim without any damages. So, I mean, this is a complicated case. There's three alleged defamatory statements on both sides. There's that higher burden of proof. There's malice. There's compensatory damages, punitive damages. It seems like they ultimately got it right, but at least during the initial verdict that they completed, um, there must have been some confusion. Were you surprised that they came back for punitive damages when, as you said, it appeared to be a mutually abusive relationship in a lot of respects? 
Now, anytime you prove intentional conduct or reckless conduct, punitives are in play. Um, obviously, to prove malice, Depp's lawyers had to prove that Heard knew she was lying when she published the statement or she acted in reckless disregard for the truth. That being said, you know, $5 million in punitive damages when Johnny Depp's lawyers didn't ask for any specific damage amount during closing was surprising to me. And one of the reasons why I believe this was an overwhelming win for Johnny Depp. This is one case based on the unique facts here. But a lot of legal experts are saying it will have a chilling effect on women coming forward in the future to bring cases of domestic violence. June is a huge setback. Let's be honest. Sexual assault, domestic violence, those are two of the most underreported crimes in the country. Women are hesitant to come forward. And there's many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is the disparity in power and wealth. Oftentimes, the men that are accused are athletes, they're entertainers, they're politicians, they're CEOs, they're men of significant means. And now women find themselves in a position where they may be sued by the men that they're accusing, and the men have hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to subject them to civil litigation, and also hire attorneys to defend themselves, and they may not have that money. So it's going to give them one more reason to potentially not report the abuse or the assault to law enforcement or medical personnel. I think it will also embolden men to file these types of cases. I mean, it all started really with President Trump, who used defamation lawsuits to really pressure his political adversaries. And I'm not comparing death to the former president, but, you know, to the extent that men are accused and they think that they've been falsely accused, sometimes the best defense is a good offense. So we're going to see copycat litigation. There's no doubt in my mind. Heard is going to appeal. What are her chances? It will be an uphill battle. I don't see any good legal basis for appeal. There has to be a legal error. And I know they've uh, talked about the UK judgment not coming in and some of the social media prejudices, but I don't think the judge did anything wrong. Uh, the UK case was obviously a different case, different parties. I heard wasn't a party to that case, different law that applies. So it really has no precedential impact here. And really social media, not much the judge can do. The judge could have potentially sequestered the jurors. That rarely, if ever happens in a civil case, you just don't have the same rights that you do as a criminal defendant. Um, and apparently there was some evidence that was excluded. But what I saw from the judge is the judge excluded a lot of the good evidence for Johnny Depp such as Kate Moss and the Seattle police officer until Amber Heard opened the door and talked about Kate Moss and said that she had never been abusive towards the next. So I think the judge called it pretty fairly. You can't appeal a factual decision by a jury, such as credibility issues and those types of things. So I understand why Amber Heard's going to appeal because you know her back is up against the wall and she needs to clear her name and She's now probably one of the most despised women in America right now because of this case and social media. So this is her one chance, as opposed to trying to negotiate a lesser payout in exchange for a waiver of appeal. I do expect that appeal to happen, but I don't think the appeal will be successful. Heard will appeal. Interest will accrue on the judgment while that appeal is pending. And importantly, because death proves that the defamatory statements were intentional, not only do you get punitive damages, but the claims aren't dischargeable in bankruptcy. So Amber is not going to be able to file Chapter 7 or 11. 
and get out of this judgment. This is a non-dischargeable judgment now. Thanks, Nima. That's trial lawyer Nima Romani. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Neither a mountain of litigation nor a new pro-worker law in California have caused sweeping changes in strip clubs. So the dancers are turning to unions as a way to improve their conditions. Joining me is Aaron Mulvaney, Bloomberg Law senior reporter who has researched and written about this issue. Why is there an effort to unionize strippers? The push for a union in California um, goes back to something that actually is a nationwide practice with strip clubs. These dancers are largely classified, the practices are pretty uniform, that they would be classified as independent contractors, which on one hand means that all of the tips that the dancers earn, they get to take home, and that's their go-home pay. And a lot of dancers historically have said that that means that they can take home up to $1,500 a night. But through hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits filed in recent years, there has been an issue with that classification, because if you're an independent contractor, you don't have the right to workers' compensation if you're injured and minimum wage, overtime. And then there are a lot of practices that are also problematic where clubs will charge stage fees to dance. And so you could technically end up in the red if customers don't show up or you don't get tips that night or you don't get a desirable shift. And of course, this is a broad brush, but there have been many lawsuits over the years nationwide that have said that dancers have been exploited, have been harassed, have been in really dangerous working conditions and have little rights because of the way they're classified. And then enter this situation in California, there's a law that was passed that makes it much harder for most businesses to classify workers this way. And a lot of strippers that I spoke to said that strip clubs haven't necessarily changed their practices. And the other thing that's been going on is that the pandemic made it much harder with the customer base being a lot slower and the clubs needing more dancers and There have just been a lot of problems with pushback in the workplace where workers don't really feel like they have the same rights or respect as other workers. And it's things that are sadly very entrenched in the system. As far as, you know, the bad working conditions, tell us about some of the problems they have on stage. At least for some of the strippers who are dancing at some of these clubs, they say that there have been unsafe conditions on the stage where the stage isn't built properly while they're dancing um, or there has been glass on the floor that hasn't been cleaned up or addressed. Other safety conditions are less direct like that and there might be if a customer crosses the line and they feel like their safety is at risk, which I think happens in this setting where there's alcohol involved and the nature of sex work sometimes could draw that out. But, you know, again, these women or men are workers and they deserve respect and and protection in the workplace, just like anybody else. They don't have workers' comp to fall back on if they get injured. Absolutely. 
I'm wondering if it's harder to unionize strippers as opposed to other kinds of workers. You talked to Selena, the president of the independent union, Strippers United, and she said strippers are treated like they aren't valuable and they've internalized that. They don't always see themselves as deserving of rights. What Selena expressed after speaking with a lot of different dancers around the state in California is that they are all experiencing similar problems, but the way that these strip clubs have operated in the past, dancers, they've often been independent and they fear often retaliation if if they speak out. And so these are things that are really counter to what a union is all about, you know, joining together as workers. So what the leaders of the union effort are trying to do is change the DNA of, of how these dancers think about themselves as workers and, and valuing themselves and the respect that they deserve. Because honestly, there wouldn't be strip clubs without these dancers. And they, they face a lot of dangerous working conditions in so many ways. But often, at least Selena says, she hears a lot of stories about more dramatic exploitation than you might hear about in other industries. The labor push in California comes against what you write is a backdrop of a mountain of litigation. Just tell us a little about that litigation. Sure. Uh, So it also goes back to what I was explaining about how a lot of the practices around the country rely on independent contractor relationships. And that has There was kind of a wave of lawsuits that were targeting strip clubs over the last decade because there are violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act, potentially, and and often strippers have won these fights, you know, against individual strip clubs and won major settlements around the country. And these have been happening pretty frequently. What we see, though, is that, you know, the strip clubs can pay a settlement, but practices have largely remained uniform throughout the industry. And, And part of it is because strippers can make a lot of take home pay, but with that, they lose a safety net that like a an employment relationship would have. So you have lawsuits on one hand, but you're not seeing dramatic change in the industry over the years. Several courts have ruled that strippers are legally employees under wage and hour laws, not independent contractors. But are you saying that the strip clubs don't honor that? Right. And there are so many strip clubs. There are major franchises, though, for example, um, one of the largest is uh, Deja Vu, and I spoke with the CEO of that company, and what he has told me before is in the settlements where a court has ruled or settled that they do need to change their classification to employees, so many of his competitors do not change their classification, and he loses dancers or the club isn't profitable enough. So I think it would need to happen on a, a, a broader scale in order to completely change. Can you give us a little more detail about why legislation isn't the answer? So for this article, I spoke with a lot of attorneys who hear from strippers and dancers themselves and strip club operators. And so I can't speak for every single strip club in California, but the the state law that was intended to change their classification to contractors, according to these people, these stakeholders that I spoke to, haven't necessarily changed their practices. They'll create contracts to make dancers owners of the club or charge them for rent time on the stage. And arguably those could be subject to a lawsuit, but they might be too small to be worth it to a plaintiff's firm. And that would be the way that that would be enforced. So yes, I think 
that a lot of strip clubs haven't changed their practices, even in California, where there are much stricter worker protections currently. And a lot of the dancers who have become employees are finding themselves with part-time work as opposed to getting to work longer and make more money potentially. And they'll have to be scheduled so they might not get a desirable time. So Selena, for example, told me that she thinks things have gotten worse to some extent for the dancers. Let's talk about the other side of the story because you talked to some strip club operators and tell us what they claim about clubs shutting down and people losing out on work. So the CEO of Deja Vu spoke to me, and that's one of the largest strip club operators in the U.S., and he said seven of his clubs in California became unprofitable after the new law that we were discussing in California and after settlements required him to classify dancers as employees. And dancers at those clubs only get part-time shifts, which obviously is less ideal than a full employment um, job and relationship because that's when you would get access to full benefits. He also spoke of losing dancers to competitors who still have the traditional independent contractor relationship. And from his perspective, he thinks that the employment model doesn't offer what the strip club business needs, including for the dancers themselves. Has there ever been a unionized strip club? Yes. In 1996, there was an effort in San Francisco, and a strip club called the Lusty Lady was the first unionized club in the United States. It really stood alone, but it did show that it was possible. It closed in 2013, and there hasn't been another one since until this recent push at this club in Los Angeles. Yeah, so why did they target this particular club, Star Garden Topless Dive Bar? I did have the opportunity to talk to someone who works at Star Garden. Uh, She asked me to go by her stage name, Lilith. And Lilith had an experience that speaks to why it could be difficult to unionize these strip clubs. She said that she did notice problems, but didn't speak to her other coworkers about them. And then there were a few things that they claim happened where they felt that very prominent dancers were retaliated against for speaking about safety conditions or unruly customers, and they were fired and not given shifts any longer. And she said those incidents sparked these dancers to come together and to talk about things that they had in common. And Selena said that it was a first good effort because they were a small group, a tight-knit group, and they kind of had the passion to understand what a union could possibly do to improve their conditions. And they sent a petition to the owners, which they felt like was not received. And they started picketing and they've been doing that um, for the last couple months in the hopes of being the, the first union since that 1996 effort. And I think that the hope for Strippers United, which is the kind of the grassroots independent labor organization for these strippers, is that this union will show others that it's possible to join together and start trying to change the brain chemistry of some of the dancers who were so used to being independent and autonomous. Erin, what do they have to do? Do you know what the next step is toward forming a union? They'll have to go through the traditional um, process through the National Labor Relations Board, and they'll have to go through a union election. And and they're in the early stages of that process and getting it together. It's definitely the early stage of the union effort. As far as class actions, they have been successful in the past, but people are not bringing them anymore? Not necessarily. We're still seeing them nationwide. I spoke to a couple of plaintiff's attorneys who have brought these cases in the past and still hear from dancers. And 
they won major settlements against some of the major operators, but these attorneys speculated that a lot of the smaller operators could be falling through the cracks, potentially based on the dancer stories. And if they're small enough clubs, they might not be worth it to some of the larger plaintiff's firms that would bring a class action case because it's not a uh, big operator that has, say, 20 clubs that they run. And that would mean that many more dancers that could be part of it and that, that much more of a large settlement. So I think that's potentially the speculation at this point. We saw a lot of major settlements in 2019, and there are some indications that that has slowed since, in California specifically. But we have seen major settlements around the country that are brought under the federal labor laws. Those are still continuing. Are they just trying to unionize in California, or are they trying to unionize in some of the other states where they've had, you know, large settlements? Currently, I only know of California and this effort. It's partially because of this this grassroots group that has really focused for for many years on trying to to bring dancers together. What I I find really sad is that in your story, so many dancers don't want to be identified by their real name because they fear retaliation. Absolutely. What I hear is that they fear retaliation from the club owners or the industry, other dancers. They are willing to talk to the press, but they've also been abused by the press in a lot of ways. And I think that that is a reality of people not really always seeing sex workers as workers, but they don't dislike their jobs. They dislike being treated as lesser. And so I think that Right now, the reason that they asked me to to call them by their stage names, I I respected because they said they could experience retaliation from strip clubs, and that's the work that they're trying to do right now. Thanks, Aaron. That's Bloomberg Law senior reporter Aaron Mulvaney. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.